We're in the midst of a healthcare revolution. Digital health is breaking down barriers for patients and providers, changing the way we do business, regulate healthcare reimbursement, and deliver care. From telemedicine solutions to medical devices to AI to innovations we can't even name yet, it's taken years of dedication from innovative leaders to pursue healthcare progress. How did we get here? What's around the corner for digital health? Let's find out together in Trailblazing with Digital Health Pioneers. Welcome to Trailblazing with Digital Health Pioneers. I'm Dale Vandermark, a partner in the digital health practice at McDermott, Will & Emery. Joining me today is Dr. Humayun, or Hank Chaudhry, who has served as president and CEO of the Federation of State Medical Boards since 2009. Dr. Chaudhry, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Dale. Delighted to be with you. Well, to start things off, I thought maybe you could give us a little bit of information about the Federation of State Medical Boards for any viewers who aren't familiar with the organization. Sure. The Federation of State Medical Boards is obviously a national organization. It represents all 71 of the state medical and osteopathic licensing boards that essentially regulate the practice of medicine because you can't practice without a license. And so each of the state boards not only issues the license, but they also have, uh, as you know, the power to take away the license for disciplinary or other actions. The FSMB um, has also a partnership with the National Board of Medical Examiners. We co-own the US MLE, the United States Medical Licensing Examination. We're involved in education, raising awareness, but a key point is we don't tell the states what to do. Uh, the 10th Amendment makes sure that the states can do what they want, but we provide an important pulpit. We provide them guidance and recommendations. And how did you come to be the president and CEO of F FSMB? That's actually a very good question. Um, I think like most doctors, I went to medical school to become a doctor and take care of patients one at a time at the bedside. I uh, never you know, planned to do what I'm doing today, uh, which is, by the way, why I tell medical students to keep your options open. You never know where you will end up. Um, in my case, I took a detour and went into public health, which involves not patients one at a time, but what's known as population health. And I got a master's at the Harvard School of Public Health, uh, became a health commissioner on Long Island uh, for a few years. Uh, incidentally, at the last pandemic that our nation faced back in 2009, and then um, got involved in regulation as well at the New York state level. I was on a state regulatory board and someone told me they were looking for a CEO at the FSMB. This is about 12 years ago and here I am. Well, we're certainly glad you took, took that position. Um, let's turn to digital health. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how FSMB has been um, addressing digital health over, the, over the, the past few years since you've started your tenure as president. Absolutely. Uh, we've been rather busy in this space, I would say, certainly in the last uh, several years and certainly in the last year with the pandemic still going on. Um, I guess one place to begin might be early on in my tenure, I knew that we were trying to, we created a model uh, policy or a guideline um, or a statute that some states would, could be interested in to create a telemedicine license. Uh, we knew telemedicine was emerging. This is about a decade ago, 
Uh, but for whatever reason, that really didn't take off. I think there were 11 states that adopted uh, this sort of additional license called a telemedicine license, apart from the full practice to, of medicine. But really, the breakthrough, if you will, uh, came in about 2015, uh, when the Federation, under a grant that we got from HRSA, the Health Resources and Services Administration, uh, got our state boards together and working with them created what's now known as the Interstate Medical Licensure Compact. Um, I know you're familiar with it, Dale, but uh, just to fill in for your audience, uh, I mean, this is quite revolutionary and quite historic because the state boards essentially agreed upon nine criteria that if a physician meets those nine criteria, they are happy and willing to instantly issue a license to practice medicine in any of the states where the individual indicates they want to practice, whether in person or telemedicine. So it's not just for telemedicine, it could be for the full practice rights. So that was an, an important distinction. Fast forward to today, uh, we now have 30 states that have adopted the compact into law and nine additional states that um, have introduced the legislation into their legislation and hopefully in, at their legislature will adopt it in the months ahead. Uh, we've seen more than 18,000 licenses issued through this pathway. It's kind of like a TSA pre-check where if you, you know, check off the boxes, if you meet the, the requirements and someone verifies the requirements, uh, you basically check off which state you'd like to get a license uh, you still have to pay the fee, but it's a lot easier now than ever before. So that's something the FSMB is very happy to have been uh, played a role in. There is a commission now run by the states that runs it. The FSMB doesn't run it, but we were delighted to help with that. Thank you. There's an awful lot you have been doing over the past few years, and, and of course, particularly in the area of telemedicine, the licensure compact has been um, very successful. Um, uh, Besides telemedicine, um, what aspects of, um, of, of healthcare um, do you think can be improved um, through digital health? Another great question, Dale. And you know, uh, we're still learning, but certainly the current COVID-19 pandemic has taught us a lot. Um, as you well know, last year, there was about a, a eight month, or sorry, eight week period where uh, when the epicenter of the virus was in New York and New Jersey and in the Northeast, there was a period of time where in this nation, we had more telehealth visits than in-person visits. No one thought that would happen, certainly not in the years to come, maybe down the road, but that was quite uh, you know, an opportunity, if you will, uh, to learn about how digital health could be utilized. And so we saw not just the type of care that you're alluding to, the one-on-one -on -one, uh, interaction between the doctor and the patient. And of course, lots of things happened to make that happen, reimbursement, um, some of the HIPAA policy uh, guidelines were relaxed, as you know. Uh, but beyond that, um, what I've seen and others have seen is this allowed for team-based care, because now let's say on a Zoom call or WhatsApp or FaceTime, you could have uh, a team meeting electronically, 
even if the specialists were in more than one location. Uh, you could have family conversations. Sometimes, you know, you can't get the entire family to show up at the hospital uh, to discuss a serious decision that needs to be made. And you have people on the phone, but now you could have everyone using digital platforms to engage with the primary care provider uh, to help the patient. Uh, but obviously, uh, broadband will be needed. There are lots of things to on the regulatory side that needs to be worked out, not just at the state level, but also at the federal level. But I would say a lot of lessons have been learned, and we're still learning them as we speak. You, you raised uh, team meetings and, and a team approach, perhaps, to um, care delivery involving um, family members who may not be available in person those sorts of dynamics. Do you see that also as um, potentially bringing a fundamental change to the way that we approach healthcare delivery? Absolutely, Dale. You know, the primary mission of a state medical or osteopathic board uh, is to protect the public. And so safety, patient safety, public protection are critical to what we do. And so when you talk about the uh, utilization of technology, uh, whether it's team-based care or getting a family together. What you're doing there is you're avoiding kind of the classic problem of the game of telephone, right? Where you, one person says something to another, but by the time it gets to the third or the fourth person, the message is distorted and sometimes completely different. So we're very concerned about efficiency, consistency, transparency, making sure that in healthcare, you know, you make one mistake, it could be catastrophic. And so one of the things that digital health does is it allows for uniformity and sort of the same message to be shared broadly to enable the right decisions to be made in the management of patient care. And I think that is powerful. That's something that uh, is just not as easy in person. You know, the medical boards, uh, as you well know, are right there at the intersection of regulation and care delivery. Um, a lot of what medical boards is to oversee how care is delivered in, in a lot of ways. Um, and it raises the question, I think, in, in my mind, is how medical uh, uh, regulators, such as the medical boards, and digital health advocates or uh, digital health developers work better together? Is there a need for those two sides of the fence, as it were, to work better together? Absolutely. And on the state board side, it's not just to know what the latest technology is. It's always sort of exciting to see the latest digital tools, but it's also to understand the mindset of those who are trying uh, their very best to create uh, tools with technology that really make a difference in people's lives, that save lives, that promote health, that prevent disease. And so I, I personally feel, uh, and many of my colleagues in medical regulation feel, that there should be more interactions, more communications between state regulators, uh, federal regulators, as well as the sort of uh, digital health community at large. Um, we don't always uh, get invited to the table. Um, I've been invited to lots of meetings, um, but I'm usually one of the audience members, and that's fine. Uh, and I get to raise a hand and ask a question. But sometimes I wonder why aren't we at the table? Because again, um, patient safety, as I said, is, is critical. And sometimes we hear technology companies talk 
wonderfully about um, you know how sexy the newest tool is, and that's great that you can do this and that. But what about safety? What safeguards have you uh, put in to assure patient safety, patient confidentiality, patient privacy? All of these are important to state regulators. And I think if there was more interactions, um, we could end up with a better product, a better, a better service for the nation. And I'm assuming that you would say the same thing when it comes to workflows. Um, a lot of technology is developed perhaps to, to solve a perceived problem that may not in a traditional workflow, in fact, be a problem or an issue. Yes, I would say definitely. I mean, we're not in the habit of endorsing specific products or services, but um, I think to the extent that we can provide um, guidance and guardrails about what we expect uh, out of the practice of medicine. And I think that's where the FSMB comes into play. Our state boards may not always have the expertise, the time, or the resources uh, to do that kind of analysis. And that's where the FSMB comes in with our policy recommendations. Uh, that's our primary goal is to serve our state licensing boards, whether that's through data collection, serving as a data repository, um, or also sharing the latest technology, the latest uh, sort of tools that are out there. That's our role, and we're happy to do that if the state boards uh, can't on their own. Well, let's shift gears. Uh, you've mentioned already the, the the pandemic that we've been uh, we've been suffering under for for a while now. Um, what were the most significant challenges faced by medical boards during the pandemic? Well, early on, um, I think both for the FSMB and for our state boards like many organizations around the country, I would say, the sort of rapid pivot that we all had to do from sort of working at work to working at home was, I think, the, the biggest obstacle. For the FSMB, because we're one organization centrally sort of lo localized, although we have offices in both Texas and in Washington, D.C., uh, thanks to our uh, IT staff and our chief operating officer, we were able to make that pivot rather quickly within about a, a week and a half. Now, the state boards had to do the same, but they had an additional obstacle of sorts because there are laws across the country where they were required to meet in person. So, you know, how do you meet by Zoom, for example, if your laws don't allow it? So obviously those laws had to be changed and modified. Uh, and, and the laws are in place, by the way, uh, for a good reason, for transparency. Uh, the idea was you don't want to have a state board meeting by telephone or by Zoom, let's say, um, and no one else knows about it. It had to be in a public venue where it was open to the public. And, and so um, because uh, all of the state boards and all the states issued emergencies uh, public health emergencies, those kinds of emergencies allowed for those modifications. So I would say the state boards had to go through a few additional hoops to uh, pivot, but they all successfully did so. Not easy uh, bec uh, because a lot of the data is contained uh, centrally, but they figured it out by the end of it, but it wasn't easy. And I think the other thing that people were surprised, I would say, to see is the flexibility and how nimble uh, regulators were in not only sort of changing their operations so that it, it was virtual, but also in terms of their policies and guidelines. We are sometimes known as rigid and slow to change, but we were actually quite nimble during the pandemic early on. I think that's a great point. Absolutely. Um, when it comes to the, to the pandemic and, and digital health, 
Um, do you think that uh, living through the pandemic has um, changed perceptions on, on digital health for state regulators? Absolutely. Um, for one thing, I mean, not only are we regulators, we're also, you know, patients uh, as well. You know, we all have, uh, also we have relatives who have needs as well. So I'll give you a good example. Um, my parents are in their 80s and they live in Brooklyn, New York. And my mother mentioned to me during the pandemic that she was uh, having a visit with her doctor using telemedicine. And I said, mom, you, you never used that before. Why are you using it now? Uh, obviously, you know, obviously there's a pandemic going on, but what made you do that? And she said, well, my doctor, who's, you know, uh, you know, also a senior physician, shall we say, um, is using it for the first time. He's never used it before. So if he's using it, I figured, let me figure this out. And because I don't want to risk, you know, my own health. And so we saw this across the country, writ large, where both providers and not just doctors, but others, uh, PAs, nurse practitioners, and others, providers and patients were willing suddenly because they had to, in part, engage in technology in a way that they never thought they could or would. And so that's been powerful. I think the other point to be made is from the state regulatory side, we recognize the power of data, the data about who is licensed, who has, been, who has a history of discipline, and we made that kind of data available broadly, not just to the licensing boards, but also to uh, healthcare centers, federally qualified healthcare centers, health and hospital systems. We actually made that available for free for a period of time because we realized as people were seeking care in non-traditional means, we wanted to be seen as supportive and helpful because you had people volunteering to help. You had retired physicians coming out of practice to help. We wanted to make sure that the state boards were helpful. And so data was made broadly available so that the right people, the qualified individuals were there to help. That, uh, that data piece, it's, it's fascinating. And I think it's probably not something that a lot of people think about um, all that much. Uh, but the sharing of, of that kind of data, as well as basic physician you know, credentialing um, uh, data, is one of the features of uh, the marketplace that I know a lot of organizations struggle with. Is that an area that FSMB is going to be uh, pursuing, perhaps with uh, this uh, newfound experience that, or, uh, that you've had during the past uh, 12 months or so? Absolutely, Dale. Uh, you know, for a number of years, we've had a public-facing website called docinfo.org, D-O-C-I-N-F-O.org. Anybody can look up any of the nation's licensed physicians or PAs and find out where they went to school, where they trained, where they're licensed, if they've been disciplined, uh, etc. cetera. Um, but we learned that during the pandemic, uh, credentialed information, not just about physicians, but about others was also critical, as I indicated. So we uh, got a grant, another grant from the federal government uh, under HRSA, uh, which is, of course, a, a division of the Department of Health and Human Services, and put together a platform called Provider Bridge. Um, and this is a platform a web-based platform, obviously, that's going to be uh, used only in a national emergency like the one we're in now. And we're working uh, to get information on that, not just about doctors, but also about nurses and other providers, so that 
credentialed information, which is different than you know public information like on DocInfo. It's specific information that uh, can help a physician become credentialed. Um, that kind of information for several healthcare providers um, we are happy to partner with the government to make that kind of information available for this emergency and the next emergency. And that's another example of not only recognizing the power of data, but also recognizing the power of collaboration. Absolutely. Um, let's turn back a little bit more to, to patient care. Um, uh, one of the um, features we saw uh, during the course of the pandemic uh, were college students returning home from school, having received some care um, locally where they were going to school, but then perhaps going back home to a different state across the country um, and potentially losing out on the continuity of care that, that could be beneficial to them. And uh, I'm wondering if, if that kind of an issue, that continuity of care uh, across state um, Orders, but also through the use of digital health tools is an area of interest or, or particular focus for the FSMB. It is. And, and you bring up two points there, Dale, about the continuity of care, but also another uh, problem our nation faces, uh, and that's related to the delivery of adequate mental and behavioral health. And so as for continuity of care, no question, uh, there's a role for digital health to play uh, because not every follow-up visit requires an in-person visit. Sometimes that in-person visit is not easy or possible. And especially if it's gonna be across state lines as the example that you gave, that could be a challenge. So we are looking into that. Um, one of the more common questions I get lately is uh, you know the states have been very flexible in allowing the practice of medicine during this pandemic across state lines, but what's gonna happen after the pandemic? And that's a great question. I don't have the answer, but I do know that states are having um, active discussions about that now. There are some interesting bills. Uh, some are temporary, like Vermont just extended their telehealth waivers through the end of March, for example. Um, on the other hand, West Virginia, for example, um, is looking at sort of creating a telehealth practitioner registration, um, for example. So there are some interesting innovations occurring across the country. We'll have to see what pans out. Uh, we'll, we're certainly going to be playing a role in putting together some recommendations because that could address that issue of continuity. But the other issue you raised is mental and behavioral health. I think, especially in that kind of um, uh, condition, it's uh, digital health is almost, you know, seems like a natural because you don't have to do a physical examination, um, engaging in conversations and therapy, uh, whether by a psychiatrist or by a psychologist, um, I think is certainly an area where digital health has a role to play and has been playing a role because the pandemic has created stress levels um, for everyone, all of us, but also for clinicians. And I think uh, digital health definitely has a role to play. You know, focusing in on behavioral health um, reminds me that we have seen a lot of different use cases now for digital health technologies as compared to um, where we were a number of years ago when there was, I think, more of a focus on the direct primary care physician to patient. We're now seeing digital health tools and telemedicine specific use cases around different areas of specialty, 
seeing where the where it can be used effectively to bridge an access gap or or other gaps in care. Um, can you talk a little bit about how those new use cases may impact some of what you're doing when it comes to guidelines and telemedicine and, and also thinking about safety um, when it comes to delivery of care to patients? Another great question, Dale. You know, I, I mentioned, uh, I think I mentioned our very first policy statement on telehealth actually dates to 1996. If you think about how sort of where we were in technology then compared to now. And Stone then, age. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then we updated it in 2002. And then our last update is 2014. But even that is too long ago because everything changes too quickly. So uh, I'm delighted that our chair, uh, Dr. Ken Simons, will be um, uh, creating another work group to look at what's out there because I think there are some exciting things happen. It's hard to keep up with everything that's happening. But in addition to uh, all the uses we've talked about already, um, I'm seeing a lot of work being done in sort of devices that people wear. Uh, that are, uh, you know, synchronized with sort of, um, you know, uh, making them accessible to the provider so that, uh, I mean, there's a lot of neat gadgets out there that people wear, but they don't necessarily sync up with sort of the practitioner. And so they still, there still is a reporting requirement on the part of the patient to share that data. I think that kind of interface needs to be strengthened, but we're seeing some powerful sort of ways in which people on their own can um, you know figure out how they're doing and share that with their providers. That makes for an even better uh, interaction potentially between the physician and the patient. Because if you think about it, patient care is a point in time type of activity. You meet with the doctor, you share your history, uh, and the doctor engages with you with an exam and tries to figure out what's been happening and hopes to see you again at a later time. That later time, the inter interval, um, is sometimes a black box. You don't really know what's happening. You hope, for example, that the patient is taking the medications that they promised that they would. Uh, you hope that they're doing okay because there's no way to monitor it until the next visit. I think with technology, that's going to be something quite different where uh, potentially every day, potentially every minute of the day, uh, the provider will have uh, access. Now, you got to make sure there's privacy and safeguards because you don't want that information shared broadly, but that's powerful. It is, and it, it goes back to something we talked about uh, briefly uh, before, and I want to re-raise re the question a bit, um, uh, maybe in a slightly different way, but in thinking about those sorts of technologies that allow both the patient to monitor for him, you know, themselves, um, and perhaps make decisions based on that information, based on either publicly available data or hopefully under the supervision of a qualified physician to take care of themselves appropriately, does it begin to change as well um, the way that physicians should view their role in the context of, of delivery of care? And I think probably most immediately, I would think about things like chronic, uh, chronic condition management, where patients may be having much more ability to control um, their symptoms, uh, and make decisions for themselves on a minute-to-minute, hour-to-hour basis to make sure that they're uh, staying healthy. I think that's an excellent point. And, you know, that's where the medical regulation piece needs to be brought into play because 
you know, it's wonderful when technology is working well and the right information is shared. But as we've also seen, technology can fail. Uh, and sometimes the information can be erroneous or not complete um, or misleading, potentially. Not potentially, not because that was done intentionally, but it's just the way that technology is. Um, and so that's where, to be honest, medical regulators get nervous because what happens when something goes wrong? Um, we have a great concern because we want to make sure that there is recourse. That's part of the mandate of the state licensing boards. But that recourse, as you know, from a legal point of view, becomes challenging. Uh, what if, you know, what if it's difficult to figure out what went wrong? What if it's the technology? Um, what if it's, um, you know, sort of a guideline or an algorithm? Um, where does the liability, so to speak, from a regulatory point of view, there's obviously a civil and other kinds of liabilities out there as well. Those are questions we've not all figured out, but I think we'll continue to be asking, uh, working with you, Dale, for your expertise and guidance on these kinds of matters as well, because I think it's not been all worked out. I couldn't agree with you more on that, that, that last point. And I think, um, uh, I think one of the interesting dynamics that uh, we'll, we will have to contend with over the years is thinking about um, individual responsibility as well as we empower patients with, with more information uh, that they're able to access and learn about themselves and about their conditions and the decisions they make on a regular basis. They become much more engaged with their own care. And again, I think it um, uh, needs to be thought about from a regulatory perspective as well as that liability perspective. Yeah, if I could, one other piece to that is expectations. Uh, we've already during the pandemic seen complaints coming in to the state licensing boards uh, as it relates to telehealth, for example, uh, where patients will say, I'm complaining because you know my doctor uh, or someone told me that this service could help me. So I paid the money, I downloaded the app or the service, I engaged with someone who said he was a doctor. Uh, I spent 30 minutes sharing my life. Uh, and then at the end of it, after you know making my payment, the doctor said, well, I'm afraid I can't help you. You'll have to go to the emergency department. So, I mean, that's a reality. Um, and so I think making sure that people who are putting together these companies and these services uh, have some uh, sort of guidance for patients because you know patients sometimes think, think technology can solve everything. But as you and I and many others know, if you get chest pain at three o'clock in the morning, that's not the time to power up your laptop. That's the time to call 911 and get rushed to the emergency department where you can get some definitive care. Uh, same with stroke and other kinds of conditions. So I think expectations, uh, I think there's a room for education for those who are putting together the technology, for the providers, as well as the patients. You know, the, um, we've, we've been talking a lot, of course, about patients and, and how technology can, can impact the delivery of care to them. Uh, and we talked a bit about mental health and the stress that it's caused uh, people and the need for mental health services and the role technology can play. Um, one of the topics that uh, sometimes comes up, probably not enough, is the stress on the provider community um, itself. What is FSMB um, doing uh, when it comes to really the, the increased stress, I think, 
uh, on physicians and, you know, issues of physician wellness and, and quite frankly, burnout. Excellent question, uh, Dale. For us, the state licensing boards, we strongly feel and believe that physician health and wellness is critical because it's related directly to patient safety and patient care. If a physician is not well, then delivery may suffer. And so this is why, in part, the FSMB a few years ago uh, put together a series of recommendations, 35 recommendations, actually, um, probably the most recommendations at that point that we had ever issued on any topic since we were founded in 1912. Uh, but we felt that it was important to do what we can to uh, address the health and stress needs of clinicians around the country, uh, especially during the pandemic. Things have only gotten worse. Uh, I mean, no one expects the life of a doctor to be stress-free, but uh, the pandemic has brought it to a different level because of a lack of personal protective equipment, or uh, the other issue is, um, you know, the inability to help when you can, because there's maybe not enough supplies available, for example, uh, to even deliver care to patients. So all kinds of stressors have been in place. We are also involved with the National Academy of Medicine to uh, work with them and many other organizations in this space to raise awareness but also to see what kind of services we can uh, deliver to uh, address the needs of state boards. A lot of physicians tell us that they're afraid to seek care because they're afraid that they might lose their license. And so we've worked with state licensing boards to change the uh, licensure renewal questions on the applications uh, to lower the stigma associated with doctors seeking care. Uh, doctors are not super beings. Uh, yes, they've been identified as heroes, but they're human beings and they deserve care for themselves, just like the care they deliver to their patients. Great point. And glad to hear that the FSMB is, is actively involved in, in, in addressing that issue. Um, uh, and of course, um, there are lots of other um, uh, issues that have come out of the, of the pandemic, but there are also issues that maybe have been pushed a little bit out of the headlines due to the pandemic. And I'm thinking um, primarily about the opioid crisis is still there. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your efforts with respect to the opioid crisis and maybe talk a little bit about how digital health can, can play a role to assist. The numbers came out, I think last week from the CDC, there were 87,000 deaths uh, uh, for the 12-month period ending in September of 2020 due to drug overdoses, much of that from the opioid epidemic and drugs laced with fentanyl, as you know. And so um, we don't have the luxury of just focusing on technology and medical regulation. There are many other issues to address. There's health equity and diversity, as you know. Uh, the FSME recently just issued a statement on that, and we'll be putting together a work group to look at uh, making sure that there is uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion in medical regulation as well, in terms of sort of the disciplinary actions that are taken and the approach that we take to regulation. But as it relates to the opioid epidemic, one of many epidemics our nation is facing. Uh, we have also partnered with the National Academy of Medicine um, on their collaborative. They have an action collaborative. I'm on the steering committee to try to address it as best they can through raising awareness, 
making uh, resources available, working with health insurance companies, the big ones, uh, especially to, to make sure that everyone's on the same page in terms of what can be done uh, to address this. We've been working with physicians at least a decade um, in educating uh, prescribers about responsible opioid prescribing. Pain management is fine, but you know you want to be careful about the doses that you choose, the medications that you choose. There are also alternatives to medications. And I think there definitely is a role for digital health in this space, both in the uh, management, but also in the treatment potentially, uh, as well of opioid use disorders or substance use disorders. Um, not all the state boards may be on the same page in terms of their statutes and their regulations, but we're working with the National Academy of Medicine to put together thoughtful guidelines. Uh, working also with branches of government like SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Medical Health Administration, uh, to make sure we're all aligned in our approach because this, and the numbers that I shared, the 87,000 deaths, Dale, are about 27,000 higher than they were prior to the pandemic because the pandemic has just made it worse. People are unable to sort of reach out for care. And uh, we fear that people are, more people are dying um, um, than they were before. It's terrible news um, and definitely needs to be the focus of our attention as a public health, uh, as a public health initiative. Glad to hear FSMB is a, is a, is a part of the efforts to, find the solutions to figure out how best to address uh, the opioid crisis. I don't want to end our conversation on such a, a depressing note, uh, uh, talking about the opioid crisis. I would like to just return to, uh, I, I think, a theme that has been running throughout our conversation, Dr. Chaudhry, and just ask you to comment on it specifically when it comes to uh, digital health de development. But we've talked an awful lot um, about uh, the different efforts that FSMB um, has engaged in. And it sounds like an awful lot of what you do is to collaborate with other organizations uh, and try to bring uh, presumably strength to strength um, to find solutions. Um, and we talked a little bit earlier about uh, engagement between uh, the digital health developers, the technology companies, um, and the regulators, um, and also the physicians as well. Um, do you believe that there are uh, sufficient number of efforts in that regard when it comes to digital health development? Or do you think that we really should be trying to talk even uh, together even more, bringing regulators, developers, practitioners um, together to uh, talk, about, uh, talk about the digital health uh, potential? I think there's more conversations occurring in this space than ever before. Um, and I think that's healthy. And I think there could be room for more, uh, especially as uh, we begin to see light at the end of the tunnel for this pandemic and begin to talk about a post-pandemic world. Right now, everyone is doing what they can to do what they can to help in uh, helping with healthcare across the nation. But I think more conversations will be needed to figure out what's the thoughtful, meaningful thing to do after the pandemic that enables uh, expansion of access to care to everyone, but also um, does it in a way that's thoughtful and safe. We believe very strongly at the FSMB that the best way to 
get to that. And we may not all disagree along the pathway uh, or even at the end result, but the best way to get to that end result is to make sure we're all talking, sharing, and collaborating. Well, certainly look forward to seeing you in person, face-to-face at some of those events in the future. We really appreciated uh, working with FSMB on our AI program a a few years ago and looking forward, hopefully, to being able to work with you more in the future. So, Dr. Chaudhry, thank you so much for joining us today and also for all of the work that FSMB has been doing for the physician community, for our health, uh, and all of the other healthcare professionals and, and patients out there. To learn more about Dr. Chaudhry and FSMB, please visit their website at fsmb.org. Thank you, everyone.